As many of you know, we're continuing our look through the first few chapters of the book of Genesis to try our best to get a handle on who it is that ultimately Jesus is, why Jesus has come, why redemption is necessary. And it's a firm conviction of mine that Jesus in his coming has come to save mankind and to save the whole world from everything that was lost in the fall. And the best way I know how to wrap our minds around all that was lost in the fall is to present and to lay out as orderly as I know how all that was present prior to the fall. And that is what we've been doing for the past eight weeks. And so I, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, I would invite you to open it to Genesis 2. We're going to look at a little longer passage today. So I know it's going to feel like we're flying now. Instead of looking at one verse, we're going to look at eight I know, take a deep breath. I know it probably panics, but um, anyways, what I want to do is I want to start in verse 9, and I'm going to make some observations, but we're really going to focus in on one verse halfway through the passage, and I think you'll see why by the time that we're finished. So here's the passage. In verse 9 of chapter 2, it says this, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Now, I've highlighted for you a couple of verbs that appear right in the middle of verse 15, and this is what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on, number one, that in Genesis 1, the Lord God created man and woman, male and female, in his image to rule over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and to have dominion over the earth. As we looked at at the beginning of Genesis 1, it is a kingly function. Human beings were set up and established to be kings to be rulers, stewards of God's good creation. But as I shared several weeks ago in chapter 2, the Lord God comes down a little bit closer and now gives a very specific command about what that rule ought to look like. And it's right here in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. These two verbs, work and keep, in tension and kept together, is ultimately what it means to be a flourishing human being. We see first at the beginning that this is happening in a garden, but this will span the globe. In fact, that's the Lord's intention, right? He has told male and female to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Well, now he's giving you an exact idea of what you are to begin to do in the garden. And here are the words. They're the words work and keep. Just to keep things simple, as you're following along, let me give you definitions of what these words actually mean. Keep in mind, they are verbs. The word work simply means to cultivate, 
to cause something to flourish, to expand, to grow, or to make better. It basically means taking the raw materials that the Lord God has given and produce something with them. We're told immediately before this section that there is every tree available to man for him to eat from. The Lord has already provided all that we need to flourish. Now he is saying to the man, and eventually the woman will join him, that we are to work the garden. We are to expand it, cause it to grow, cause it to flourish, make it better than what it actually is, and spread it towards the end of the earth. But there's a second verb that keeps in perfect tension this idea of working, and it is the verb keep. And it basically means preserve, guard, and protect. Here's what is happening in the garden. According to chapter 3 in Genesis, we know that the Lord God walks in the garden in the cool of the day, coming looking for Adam and Eve who have found themselves hiding what that communicates to me is that Adam and Eve expected the Lord God to be walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so most likely, this is an assumption, but I am making an assumption. Most likely, the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day every day with Adam and with Eve. It was a perfect flourishing garden where his presence was there and they were invited to be there along with him. What that says to me is that what God is now asking Adam and Eve to work the garden is to expand it, is to spread it. But he also wants them to protect and preserve and to guard what they have. Here's the idea. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Does this mean that they are to leave the garden and therefore leave the presence of God in order to fill the earth. I think if you're reading along in your Bible, we might ponder the answer to that question. Are they encouraged to leave the garden and therefore leave the presence of God in order to fill the earth and subdue it? I think the answer would be no. And I think that these really four strange verses that show up right before verse 15, talking about delium and onyx stone and a river flowing out of the whole land of Havilah. It sounds really weird to us. Is, is Moses or whoever's writing Genesis giving us a, a geography lesson here? No, I don't think so. What Genesis is doing is it's showing us that with four rivers going north, south, east, and west, flowing down from this mountaintop place of Eden, is that the water source to spread the garden and expand the garden and take the presence of the Lord with them to the four corners of the earth is already in place from day one. You see, the Lord never calls his people to do anything that he has not equipped them and empowered them in order to be able to do. Or he promises he will bring his presence in in order to enable us to do it. And so here's what's really fascinating about these two verbs, work and to keep. What we are called to do is to cultivate and to take this little tiny garden. Notice it's not the Garden of Eden, it's a garden in Eden. This is such a small plot of land. It's a little portion of land where a man and a woman are put in order to grow and expand this garden to fill Eden, to fill the region. The water is there. Plants need water to grow. You're digging up the ground. You're planting new seeds. You're watching this thing expand. And the whole time, you are preserving and guarding and keeping what makes the garden special and therefore worth expanding. But you're not so focused on preserving and guarding what you have that you fail to realize you're called to make it bigger. 
I cannot think of any area in human existence where this does not play itself out on an individual level, at a family level, at a community level, at a national level. People are constantly keeping or trying to keep in tension this idea behind work, cultivate, make something better, grow it, produce it, see what you can do with it. And the other side who says, don't lose what you have, make sure you keep what's good, make sure you preserve, guard, and protect what? The presence of God with us in the garden. I see this personally at a personal level. Number one, we're called to maintain our identity as people. Who are we? How has God made us? But then we also recognize that he has called us to expand and to grow into someone fuller, someone who is more complete. We see this same thing in churches. We want to retain what makes our church unique. But we also want to cultivate the potential as we strive toward what we could become. I see this tension playing itself out right now at Grace Church. We have two churches who have their own identity and no doubt want to come into a, a shared ministry with their assumptions of preserve my identity. Preserve, guard, and protect the way we do it as Lutherans. Preserve, guard, and protect the way we do it as Anglicans. Because of this shared ministry, we are forcing upon ourselves cultivation, expansion, growth, and change. And if I were to walk up to each one of you and ask, which one do you think we ought to favor more right now? I'm probably going to get a 50-50 split, and it's probably going to be 50-50 on both the Anglican side and the Lutheran side. Welcome to church shared ministries. Welcome to the potential for conflict. Welcome for the potential to learn to love one another and listen to the concerns that one another share. How do we, and this concern came up directly to me when I first presented to Christ Church that we were thinking about doing a shared ministry. Whatever we do, we do not want to lose the family feel that we have in our church. Duly noted. How do you grow in number and preserve the small feel of a church? Great question. If you were to pull people, if I were to pull you, if you were to pull your friends or whatever, people all oftentimes carry around within themselves their ideal church size. Some people feel like this church size is too big. Some people feel like this is just the beginning. I can't wait till we have 200 people. Does this not take learning and growth and understanding. How do we take what we have, grow it without losing what we have? Welcome to the relationship between work and keep. I personally see this on a national level. When you get into political discussions, it does not matter where you fall. There are plenty of moderates in this country, but there are plenty of liberals and there are plenty of conservatives. They do not fit. This is not an overlap, okay? I do not read the Bible like, oh, how does this work in America? But what I'm trying to bring to your attention is we have some people who are eager for growth, expansion, change. And then there are others who look at national interests and say, no, 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 no. We need to do what's always worked. It, tradition. This is the way we need to preserve and, and keep things the same. Welcome to the world of work and keep. 
It applies to individuals, it applies to families, it applies to churches, and it applies to nations. We are all living out as human beings what the Lord God first called Adam and Eve to live out. This is very, very important because we are constantly living this tension. And yet if we left it right here with work and keep, that would be neat for human beings in their understanding. But the Bible is telling a story. And one of the ways the Bible tells this story is it brings these verbs, work and keep, back into the story later on to help explain the role that God's people, Israel at the time, was supposed to carry out. And here's what I'm doing. My mind works in pictures sometimes, so let me paint the picture. The beginning of the Bible is an explanation. While it starts with one or two individuals, it's starting with humanity as a whole. What Genesis 1 and 2 are doing is describing what all human beings are supposed to be and do. The Lord God then focuses his attention later on in chapter 12 of Genesis by focusing in on a particular person who is going to have a family. Ginger read about it from Genesis today. It's Abraham and his descendants. Then focused in from there is ultimately the person of Jesus. And then out from Jesus is the one who's come to restore back everything that we were supposed to be. That's why I'm trying to walk this through with you. But if you flip ahead to the book of Numbers, which I know nobody ever reads, but uh, thankfully some people do. And in the book of Numbers, here's what we see. The Lord God spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set, before, set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. The Lord is giving instructions now to Aaron, to Moses, to talk to the priests, the people who are going to serve in the tabernacle to be the go-betweens between God and the people and between the people and God. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Now I've highlighted several words for you. Minister, keep guard, minister. Guard, keep guard, minister. They are the same two verbs used in Genesis 2, work and keep. Do you know why? Because Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord God is establishing for the entire world that he wants human beings functioning in a temple, serving the Lord and serving the people keeping out of the sacred temple what doesn't belong there and only allowing the clean things in and yet being there to facilitate intimate relationship with the Lord. Genesis 1 and 2, while you can just pick up your Bible and read them, are actually painting a much more beautiful picture. We're not dealing just with a temple here. The whole world is supposed to be a temple. And the people in the temple... Serving the Lord and serving one another are supposed to be the human beings. This is why in Israel's day, when you get to the tabernacle, when you get to the temple, we don't, it, it's foreign to us. We don't understand it. It's a microcosm of what was supposed to be happening over the whole world. We get our first clue from Genesis 1 and 2, and it develops as we go. And so what does it mean as a human being to have this kind of identity? 
What does it mean to be made such that we are creative and we try to cause things to flourish and yet we maintain, preserve, and guard what we already have and what we have, what, what makes what we have worth expanding? Well, it means that in this garden, we have freely received everything that we need. Our sustenance. Every tree is here. It's good for food. You're just not to eat from this one tree. We get our life our value, our identity, and our well-being from the Lord himself. He tells us in verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. You see, he's giving this to us freely. He's providing for us, sustaining us, caring us, and loving us, and we in return serve him, and we take what he has given us and we expand it. We cause it to flourish. We care for and tend to his creation. And as human beings made in his image, we reflect his creative hand in our creativity. We rule over his creation the same way priests do in the tabernacle. Serving the Lord and the people and then guarding that relationship against death and uncleanness and disobedience entering to corrupt it. And so we are constantly doing these two things. Serving, expanding, cultivating, growing, and guarding, protecting, and preserving all the time in every single sphere of our lives. I discovered for the first time when we moved to Washington, having lacked a lot of self-awareness most of my life, I didn't know that I didn't really like change until I was put into a tricky situation where a house we thought we were going to rent fell through the day we were moving and we had to move in with some members of the church and put our stuff in storage. It just wasn't what I had anticipated. And I practically had a mental breakdown. And then I posted online one day, wow, I thought I handled change really well. Ha ha, you know, and I don't. And I'll, and I'll think, look, and I'm going to get a lot of responses. And Jessica comes up to me and she's like, you thought you handled change well? Do you know yourself? <laughs> Apparently not. But here's a question that I had to wrestle with. When someone proposes a change, something new, how do you respond? I've learned about myself that I tip the scales in the keeping category. I like to keep things the same. I'm a routine kind of person. It's comforting to me. When somebody proposes a change, I don't get excited. I feel threatened. Because that means what I have is going to go bye-bye, and I don't like that idea. Instead, what is happening here with the Lord's presence, the Lord who says, I will be with you. I will go with you. You don't have to leave my presence in order to fill the earth and subdue it. Let's just grow this thing together from the middle outward. Then I can take a deep breath and say, oh, what is being introduced now isn't a threat. It's that this could be better if it were expanded. Now, others of you in this room are fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of people. If you get into more of a routine that lasts more than 48 hours, you want to break out of it and just change everything up. You're the people that change your living room furniture every other month because you're bored. That's great. We need people like you as well. But when you try to set up something with someone who doesn't like any change and they don't like to do anything new and you do all the time, what does it take? It takes patience. It takes love. It takes consideration. 
But with the presence of the Lord, this is the direction he wants to take us. As I shared with you before, Israel as an entire nation, the Lord tries to give them an identity based upon the same identity he's given to all human beings. And this is it. It's one of the most famous passages to describe why Israel as a nation exists in the first place. And here's what it says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. One of the reasons I know growing up why I get so confused reading the Old Testament is because I think here's this priest, he's given this clothing that he's supposed to wear and these activities that he's supposed to do in the tabernacle. I don't understand any of this. What does this have to do with me? I'm not a priest. And that's what I would say and then I would just move on. Of course, that was when I was a Baptist and then I became an Anglican and in Anglican world, you get to be a priest, right? So sure, I'm a priest. I know in a Lutheran world, I'm I'm a reverend or a pastor and and all of that is fine. The, The function here is what Israel as a nation is supposed to be to the world. They also have individuals who are supposed to be for them. This is the picture. As a priest walks into a temple, as a pastor walks into a church and is here to speak words and to speak blessings and to speak prayers, bringing the truth and the presence of God to the people and to bring the requests of the people to the presence of God. That is all a priest is supposed to be and do. The Lord does something unique. And he says, as an entire group of people, Israel, thousands of you, you as a group are to be a kingdom of priests, to be the go-between from me to the rest of the nations and from the rest of the nations back to me. So Israel was uniquely positioned to be that kingdom of priests. If you want to get ahead in understanding why the Lord critiques them the way he does in the Old Testament or why he has reason to bless them for what they do right, it is how faithfully they represent him to the nations and how eager or non-eager they are to represent the nations back to the Lord. I would propose, and I'm not alone, that the church functions in largely the same way. I'm not alone because Peter picks up this language from Exodus 19 to describe the church, to describe the people that have been formed by the high priest himself, Jesus, into perfectly knowing what it means to lay down one's life sacrificially for those outside the temple. Here's what Peter tells us. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is positioned to be a kingdom of priests, to represent the nations to the Lord, and to represent the Lord to the nations. 
This is what Jesus has restored us to be. Why? Because this is what all human beings were supposed to be from the beginning. And so in one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, Revelation 5, we are told this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We will look at, in just several weeks, what the fall did to destroy mankind's ability to be effective priests. And I'm here to tell you, it is not an ancient story. It is our story. It is a current, present story reality and you and I think and breathe that air every single day it's perfect that in a season of Lent we can prepare our hearts through what it is that the Spirit wants to teach us as we open ourselves up to see wow we're really a long way off thank God that Jesus has come to restore this mess and to build us back up through his spirit into the kinds of people he's always created us to be. Jesus wants an active kingdom of priests now. He's not looking off into the future until one day when we go to be with him. He's saying, I've come to you. And now what I want to do from here through my spirit is I want to grow you, transform you, change you. And I love it that Paul uses words like transformed because that implies that you don't lose what you were. You just take what you were to become something better. It's work and keep. You expand and cause to flourish, but you're not losing what is central. Now, figuring out what is central, that might be the million-dollar question. There's plenty of disagreement about what that is. But Jesus has come to restore us to becoming a kingdom of priests who rightly demonstrate to the world who he is and his love for them and then bring their requests and concerns back to the Father. That's what a priest does. And we in this room are a kingdom of priests. I am not a special priest. A priest, as I understand it from this point, is that I am the first one to say, I will do what I am asking you to do in following. I will lead by being the first to be a priest. And there have been times already in this shared ministry where I have had to come in and say, what are God's words to you? And what are your requests and concerns back to him? And I also recognize as I get to know several of you and get to know more and more of you, which ones of you tend to favor a keep it mentality and which ones of you are eager and go after it for the work. We have to have both. And next week we'll look at why that's the case. Because we're not just individuals. We are communal. We're made this way in the image of God. And he ultimately wants to bring us back to that point. Jesus, would you lead us, guide us, love us, strengthen us, rebuke us when we need it as well? Thank you so much for the way you have created the world. 
Thank you for the privilege it is as a human being to be in your presence and to be able to take things that you give us in this world and be creative. It is so much fun to watch people come to life when they get to be creative. Whether that's painting or writing a poem or a song or building something or dismantling something and then putting it back together in a way that's more efficient. That's how you've made us. You've made us to be this way. And yet you've also asked us and exhorted us not to ever walk away from the things that make what we have worth expanding. We preserve and we guard and we protect our intimate walk with you and the way you've set up the world and the love you've called us to have for one another. May those things never escape us. May we never leave those things behind in the name of moving forward. And yet may we not be afraid to move forward under the heading of we like things as they've always been. Give us grace for one another as we continue these conversations and planning and dreaming in this church. Thank you for calling us with such a high calling and giving us your spirit so that we don't have to go it alone. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.